Morning, Whitefields. Good to be here with you. Try and get set up. All right, so our reading today, if you have your Bible, please read along with me. Our reading today comes from Romans chapter 3, from verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are just and you are the justifier of us who put our faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, this morning as we study your word, Lord, we ask that you would do that work by your spirit in us of building us up in our most holy faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith this morning and hope in the gospel. And I pray that, Lord, this morning we would see the gospel clearly. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that it is abundant. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you that we have security in your love. And, Lord, we just ask this morning, fill our hearts to overflowing as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began a new series. We are studying through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, you know, this is an actual letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who are living in the region of Galatia, which is in Asia Minor. It's in modern day Turkey. Um, This letter, I like to refer to it as Paul's manifesto of grace. This is an urgent appeal that Paul is making and it brings us face to face with the gospel with the implications of the grace of God and and the implications of the sufficiency of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Christ is all sufficient. His life, his death, his resurrection, it is all sufficient for everything we need in the spiritual realm in our hearts. And and he goes into this letter and he's talking about what that means for us personally and what that means for our, our lives practically. He's talking about the implications of grace. So our text this morning, uh, we started chapter one last week, and I don't know if you were paying attention, but we left out one verse last week. That's because we're going to talk about it today, all right? So today I'm just going to be speaking about this one verse. This is Galatians chapter one, verse 10. Paul says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The situation as we begin this letter is this. Paul is under fire. He is being criticized. He's under fire because the gospel that he's preaching is a gospel which is centered on the grace of God and it's centered on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, of his work on the cross. And he taught, Paul taught that it is by grace that you're saved through faith. And that's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I don't know if you remember in the book of Acts when Paul was a missionary. He was journeying around preaching the gospel, planting churches. And we read that at one point, someone asked him, what must I do to be saved? 
That's a heavy question, right? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be made right with God to attain forgiveness of my sins and salvation for my soul? And here's what Paul answered. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then keep this list of rules. Let me roll it out there for you. He didn't tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then keep these seven sacraments or these do these five steps and you will be saved he didn't even say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be a decent person and you will be saved he just said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved that's it but you know here's the thing not everybody who heard that message liked what they heard not everybody was very happy when they heard that message Paul's critics basically accused him of being a people pleaser and that's what he's referring to here they accused him of preaching grace that was cheap, that was too easy. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the term, sloppy agape. That's what they said. Paul, this is cheap grace. It's too easy. You're making the door too big. It's sloppy agape. You know, you're telling people all they got to do is believe in Jesus and then it doesn't matter what they do after that. If they live like a dog and, or live like a hog and die like a dog, it doesn't matter as long as they've got their get out of hell free card, right? And, and people today also, they'll look at the message of grace and as they did in that day and they'll say, that's too easy. You're making it too easy. It's too simple. You have to require more of people than just to simply believe by faith and receive the grace of God for them. There must be some kind of condition to this, right? There must be more condition. There must be more parameters that we can put around this. There's got to be some rules. There's got to be some requirements, some things that people got to do in order to merit such a lofty and great thing as salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. So as we look at verse 10 today, understand this is the setting into which Paul is speaking. These are the accusations that he is responding to. And as we look at this verse, it's a short verse, but I think there's a lot packed in there. So we're going to break it into three main things that Paul is saying here. Number one, he's going to talk about the fear of God versus the fear of man. Number two, he is going to address cheap grace versus costly grace. And number three, he's going to talk about freedom and servanthood. Okay? So let's begin. The fear of God and the fear of man. Now Bill Cosby once said, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. I think that Bill Cosby knew a thing or two. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon declared this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now here in Galatians, Paul the Apostle says, if we fear men, then we cannot be the servants of Christ. You know, the Bible has a whole lot to say about this idea of the fear of God versus the fear of man. Uh, the fear of God, and, and really these are opposing things, right? That's how they're portrayed. The fear of God and the fear of man are in opposition to each other. They're opposites. When the Bible uses the term fear of God, probably you know this, but it doesn't mean to be frightened of God. But it rather means something much more. It means to be filled with awe at who he is. Filled with wonder and, and reverence at God's greatness to the point where you find it so very attractive that you want more of it you desire to have more of it and so the fear of man is is a view of people whether it's one particular person or or whether it's a group of people 
in which you hold them in awe, you hold them in reverence so much to the point where you crave their approval and you very much fear their disapproval more than anything, really. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to win their approval, even if that means crossing some ethical boundaries that you've set up for yourself. Even if it means compromising your ethics because that is the one thing that you must have, you crave their approval and you so desperately fear their disapproval. In other words, let me put it this way for you. The fear of man is when you give people the rights and power over your heart that only God should have. Think that one through. So a very real question we need to ask ourselves is this. Uh, what is it that drives me? Is it the fear of God or is it the fear of man? The fear of man will prove to be a snare, a trap. That's what God's word says. And you know what? There are plenty of stories in the Bible that illustrate what the results are of living and walking in the fear of man. And, and what it really comes down to is summed up in this. The fear of man holds you back from reaching your God-given potential. It holds you back from being who you could be in the Lord and through the Lord. Now give, let me give you an example. The book of 1 Samuel tells the story of Saul. He was the first king of Israel. Now what's interesting about the nation of Israel is that they existed for hundreds of years without having an actual uh, human king, right? For centuries they had men of God who would lead the nation, but they never had a dynasty. And there was a very special and symbolic reason for that, actually. Uh, the reason Israel didn't have a king was because God was their king. God filled that role for them. And they, they were a nation which was ruled by God. Did you know that? That's part of the meaning of the name Israel. It means ruled over by God. If you remember in Genesis, we talked about that when God renamed Jacob Israel. Ruled, dominated by God. And so in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, what we read is that the people of Israel asked God to give them a king so they could be like all the other nations around them. And although it pained God's heart to hear this request, that Israel wasn't satisfied having him as their supreme ruler, he, he listened to them and he gave them what they asked for. And uh, the man that God chose to be the king of Israel was this man named Saul. Now, at first, Saul was actually hesitant about taking on this role, this position. In fact, on the day when they tried to appoint Saul as their king, Saul actually ran away and hid, and they had to go find him, you know? Come on out, Saul. We wanna make you our king, you know? Stop hiding from us. So the guy runs away, he's very timid, doesn't wanna take on this responsibility, but they find him, and he finally agrees to, be, uh, to let them make him king. And what he found out, very quickly, I'm sure, was that he actually really liked being king. You know, being king's not actually all that bad. You got people who wait on you, people like you. In fact, they even started singing songs about him because he was so popular. And he really began to love the recognition and the praise and honor that he received because he was the king. In fact, we also read that he was a very good king. He started out very well, actually. But ultimately, do you know what Saul's downfall was? Saul's downfall was that he loved being popular so much that he was constantly afraid. Do you think about that? Saul was constantly afraid. In fact, you could even say that he was plagued by fear. 
It just plagued his life. It just ruled over him like a dark cloud, this fear. And do you know what he was afraid of? He was afraid of becoming unpopular. He was afraid that people would stop adoring him and looking up to him. And one day, Saul was faced with his greatest nightmare. The one thing he feared, perhaps more than anything, came true. And here's what happened. God asked him to do something that Saul knew if he did it, would be very unpopular with the people. So he's faced with this choice. He's at a crossroads. He's got a choice. Should I please God by obeying him at the risk of losing my popularity with the people? Or should I do what would be popular with the people even though it would mean disobeying God? Have you ever been faced with a situation like that? Where you're at this fork in the road and you've got to decide, well, if I do this... Well, it, it's not going to please God, but it'll please the people around me. But if I do what pleases God, then people around me are, are not going to like it. I'll lose their approval. I'll lose their love, perhaps. So you know the story. You know what Saul did? He chose to do what would please the people around him rather than what God had asked him to do. This is what we read in 1 Samuel 15 where, where he's actually confronted about it. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And he says why? Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul himself recognized the problem. He was operating in the fear of man rather than in the fear of God. And do you know what happened as a result? As a result of this, Saul lost his authority, he lost the monarchy, and ultimately, and very ironically, Saul even lost his popularity. Saul so much wanted the adoration and the attention of the people that it became the only thing that mattered to him. It became the one thing that he had to have. He so much desired, he, he craved people's approval, and he so feared their disapproval that he was willing to do anything in order to get it. But what happened was that somebody else became more popular than him. A man named David came along. David kind of came out of nowhere onto the scene and he defeated the giant Goliath. And instantly he became a national hero. And whereas people used to sing songs about Saul, they now began to sing songs about David. And Saul was so upset by that that he determined that he would get rid of David at any cost, even if he had to murder him with his own two hands. And so Saul embarked on this number of years where he spent years of his life in this kind of deranged uh, hunt to track down David and kill him. And, and here's what happened. Rather than doing his job that God gave him, right, to be the king, to govern the nation, to protect them from invading armies, uh, instead he spends all his time and resources trying to hunt down and kill David because David was more popular than him. And, and as a result, eventually the Philistines overran Israel because Saul wasn't doing his job. And ironically, how does Saul die? He dies at the hands of one of these invaders. Sad story. Do you see where the fear of man led in Saul's life? The fear of man led Saul on this downward spiral in which he no longer stood for anything. The fear of man, this craving for people's approval and this fear of their disapproval, it left Saul just a shell of a man. He was distracted from what really mattered and therefore he became ineffective. And, and also he was, he was making these desperate attempts to make people like him and in, as, 
In doing that, he actually lost people's respect because he stood for nothing. The fear of man is a snare. It is a trap that will hold you back from becoming all that you can be in the Lord and all that you can be through the Lord and for the Lord. Look at all the potential that Saul started out with. He was king. God chose him to be king. He could have been a great king that led the people in the ways of the Lord. But the fear of man held him back from becoming a great king and a godly leader that he could have been. Don't let that happen to you. The fear of man is a snare. But, but opposed to the fear of man, whereas the fear of man is a snare, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It says that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what we're faced with here is this, these two things that are, are opposed to each other, these two sets of motivations that can drive our actions and our decisions, the fear of God and the fear of man. The one is a snare. The other one, the fear of God, is a fountain of life. It, it leads to life and confidence and wisdom. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 1 verses 10. He's saying the ultimate driving, motivating factor in my life is the fear of God and not the fear of man. And because of that, I'm not shaken by criticism. It doesn't ruin my life. It doesn't make me fall apart when people don't like me or say something critical about me. See, one of the things that Paul had discovered as he had come to understand the gospel was that in the gospel there is an amazing security which sets you free from needing the approval of others like Saul did. When you really understand what the gospel means for you, it sets you free from the fear of man. It enables you to be a confident person and a fearless follower of Jesus. Here's the message of the gospel, that in Christ you have not only been forgiven, but you have been justified. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is what we read in Romans 3 at the beginning, that he is just and the justifier. Not only does he forgive your sins, but he justifies you. That word justified is one of the most important words in the Bible. One of the most important concepts for understanding the gospel. See, forgiveness is a negative, right? But justification is a positive. Let's put it this way. To be forgiven is to be released from what you owe, right? But to be justified is to be bestowed with a status, a status that you are worthy of being accepted. And that is exactly what God did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He cast all of our sins, all of our iniquity, all of our transgressions, and he cast them upon the person of Jesus. And in return, he gave us, he accounted to us all of Jesus' righteousness. So that not only are we let go from punishment, but we are also brought in to fellowship with God. We are accepted. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be accepted. Think about it this way. Forgiveness is when you let somebody go. But justification is when you welcome somebody in. And that's exactly the security we have in Christ. That in him we are fully loved and fully accepted. And that knowledge that in Christ we are now fully loved and fully accepted. You know what it does when you really let it sink down into the depth of your heart? It gives you confidence. Confidence. 
It gives you confidence like nothing else does. And here's what it does. With that confidence, you are set free from the fear of man, which is a snare, right? It sets us free to live in the fear of God, which is the fountain of life. Now, inevitably, when you talk about the fear of God versus the fear of man, there's always a couple of knuckleheads out there who, uh, who take it the wrong way. No matter what you say, they're going to take it the wrong way, right? I don't know if you ever met this person before, but uh, this is a person who uses this as an excuse to not care how anybody thinks or how anybody feels, right? Because I'm not trying to please you, I'm trying to please God, so I don't care what you think, you know? I don't know if you've ever met this person. I have quite a number of times. Uh, you know, they'll be rude and harsh and insensitive towards people. And they do it all under the guise of, well, I'm not living to please people. I'm living to please God. Well, hey, guess what, brother? God likes it if you're kind to people. God likes it if you're loving. So if you're trying to please God, then please don't be a jerk, okay? And... Uh, another vision, another version of this that you see, especially here in Boulder, right, Boulder County, a version you see of this is, well, I don't care what I look like, right? I don't take showers and I don't change my clothes because you know what? I only care about pleasing God and not about pleasing you. So, you know, I, man looks at the outward things and God looks at the heart, so whatever, you know? Well, that's true, but let me tell you this. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. And guess what? Your neighbor would love it if you would take a shower, right? <laughs> uh, because God does look at your heart, but guess what? The rest of us still got to look at your face. And, uh, <laughs> and guess what? We all got to smell you when you walk by. So the point is this, that being set free from the fear of man and living to please God should never be taken as an excuse to be rude or insensitive or callous towards other people, okay? That brings us to the next thing that Paul addresses here in Galatians chapter one. Cheap grace versus costly grace. Now again, Paul was under fire because he was preaching grace. He was preaching the gospel, the gospel of grace, which is the message that everything that needed to be done in order for you to be saved and forgiven and justified and made right with God, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. That's what he declared on the cross. There's nothing that you have to do in order to earn it. In fact, there's nothing that you can do in order to earn it. And in fact, even if you try to do, that's offensive. Because you're saying, no, it's not finished. No, there's something I need to add to it. The gospel of God's grace is the message that your right standing with God is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based completely on what Jesus did for you and that is something that you must receive by faith. And so people in Paul's day, they found that message to be absolutely scandalous. Do you know that? They found it to be scandalous. And you know what? People today still find that message to be scandalous. And here's why it's scandalous. Because the implications of it are enormous. They are huge. Think about this. If I don't have to do anything in order to be saved and accepted by God, except just believe and receive it by faith, well then, that means that I'm free, doesn't it? It means I'm totally free. So the question that that brings to us is this. If God has already accepted me and forgiven me in Christ, then what motivation do I have to keep his commandments? Then what's my motivation to live in a way that pleases him if it's already taken care of in Christ? 
And here's why the gospel is scandalous. The gospel is scandalous for this very reason. It removes the element of fear. You ever thought about that? Fear is no longer a motivating factor in the gospel. Apart from grace, people are indeed motivated by fear. If you don't keep these regulations, if you don't do these things, then you will lose God's blessing and favor and salvation. Essentially, every religion in the world, man-made religions, they're all based on this idea of fear, this factor, this motivating factor of fear. And the bless, uh, the, the, sorry, the reason people in Paul's day and people in our day as well, are threatened by the message of grace is because it removes the element of fear as the driving, motivating factor. And the question is, you know, that people ask is, well, if you remove that element of fear, then what reason will Christians have left to read their Bibles and go to church? I don't know. What what do we got left? If we're not motivated by fear, then uh, then why are people going to go to church anymore? If you tell them that they don't have to be afraid, then then they're going to not read their Bible. They're not going to do good things. Maybe they won't even walk with God or, or, or you know, say no to sin. And, and many times because of this fear of, fear of losing the fear element, the, the sentiment in the church has been, well, even if grace is true, we probably shouldn't tell anybody about it or at least not talk about it too loudly because if people are no longer bound by fear, then there will be nothing left to keep them here. Uh, they'll think that they are free, you know? And guess what? That's true. That's what's so scandalous about the gospel. But here's the thing. The gospel removes the element of fear and as as a thing which motivates you to obey God and to live to please God. But here's what it does. It gives you a different motivator. It gives you a much more powerful motivator. In fact, the most powerful motivator that exists, and that is love. Love, let me tell you, is a much more powerful motivator than fear. If you've ever loved someone, you know that your love for that person will inspire you to do things which under other circumstances you would consider a bummer and like, uh, you know, a burden, something that you don't want to do. You know, but because you love that person, you're happy to do those things. You do them joyfully, not because you have to, but because you get to, right? Because you want to. Whereas fear, think about this, whereas fear makes you want to do things right, but love makes you want to do your best, right? Think about this. I played Little League growing up, so here's the image in my mind. Uh, Imagine a father watching his son play baseball for the team that the father coaches and as the father sits in the dugout he he loves his son fully and completely you know and and if his son forgets his dad's instructions when he's up to bat and he strikes out that will not at all change how the father feels about the son the son knows that the father loves him he is completely assured of his father's love regardless of his performance But the son, here's the thing, even though he's secure in his father's love, he still longs and desires to hit a home run, right? He longs and desires to do well. Not in order to win his father's approval, because he knows he has his father's approval. Not out of fear that that if he doesn't perform well, he will lose his father's love because he's totally secure in the fact that his dad loves him and that nothing's going to change that. 
So what is his motivation for wanting to hit that home run? What is his motivation for wanting to perform well? It is the love of his father. If that's his motivation. He wants to please his father because of the love that they share together. He wants to have something that they can share in together and celebrate together. That's what the gospel does for us. It removes the element of fear and it gives us a new, much more powerful motivator, love. In John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, we read this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's what we're talking about. Love is the ultimate motivator. Love inspires us to greater heights than fear or guilt or obligation ever could. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, the love of Christ constrains us. It compels us. He says the love of Christ who gave all for us to save us and redeem us and make us his His love constrains us. It grabs a hold of our hearts. It motivates us. It inspires us. It moves us to action. The love of Christ is our new motivation in the gospel. And here's the point. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. I hope you know that. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus everything. God became a man and gave his life for you. That is a high price. And in return, he asks nothing less, nothing less does he ask than your whole life. Do you know that? He gave his life for you. That's a high price. And in return, he asks nothing less than your whole life. That's also a high price. But here's the thing, when you come to understand the gospel, this message of God's grace, that you are both forgiven and justified, you are let go, let free, and welcomed in. You're set free from this fear and this guilt and this obligation, and you find something much greater, something much more motivating, something much more captivating, something much more compelling, and that is love. It's the love of Christ that moves us. Even though we've been set free, right? We've been forgiven. We've been set free from our debt. But it's the love of Christ that justifies us and welcomes us back in, that moves us and compels us to give our entire lives over to him, to live seeking to please him, to walk in his ways, to seek his face, not because we have to, but because we get to. Because there's nothing else in the world that we want more than to give our entire lives to him. Have you come to that place yet? Have you come to the place where you say, there is nothing more I want in my life than to give it all over to him, than to place it all in his hands? Let me tell you what, that will happen. If it hasn't happened for you yet, that will happen when you truly come to grips with the love of God for you. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul in his life. And that brings us to our third and final point, our third and final issue that Paul is addressing here in Galatians 1 verse 10. Freedom versus servanthood. In in this verse, and actually in many other places in his writing and in the writing of other apostles, Paul refers to himself as the servant of Christ. Now some translations will translate that as slave 
Others will use a, a very interesting word which I prefer and that is bondservant. Now the reason I prefer the term bondservant is because that word has a specific and special meaning. A bondservant is a person who was free but yet made a choice to become somebody's slave. They were a free man and they chose to become a slave. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't forced upon them. They weren't kidnapped. They would do it out of their own volition. They walked up to the front door and said, hi, I'd like to serve in your house if you would have me, you know? They said, I, I'm going to lay aside my freedom. I'm going to lay aside my rights and become this man's servant because there's no place that I would rather be than in his household because he treats me so well. It's so good for me here. You know, back in the day when this was written, uh, the way that this would take place is that if a, if a person had debt, right, like most of us probably, right, had debt, they would work off their debt by becoming an indentured servant, right, meaning that they were contracted for a number of years, and at the end of their contract, they were free to go, and their debt was forgiven. But there were some who would say, after they were already let go, they would say, you know what, it was good for me there. Those are the best years of my life. That is the place that I want to be. It was good for me in my master's house. They, I was treated well. I was loved. I was cared for. And, and even after they've been set free, they will return to their master's house and offer themselves as servants. They'll say, there's nowhere else I want to be. It's so good for me here. If you will have me, then I will come and be your servant. I would love to. That's the image that Paul is invoking in regard to the gospel. And he's saying essentially this, that through the gospel, I have been set free. But now as a free man, I choose to make myself a servant of Christ, to give him my life completely, not because I have to, but because I want to, because I get to. It's a privilege. There's nothing else that I want more because my master is good to me. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than by his side close to him essentially this is what happened to the prodigal son I love the story of the prodigal son it's just got so many layers of depth and and you see the gospel in it in so many angles right so here's what happened with the prodigal son this is in Luke chapter 15 the prodigal son wanted to get away from his father he wanted away from his father's authority because he felt that his father was too restrictive he imagined that if he could just be out on his own, then he could do whatever he wants, right? He could, uh, and then he would be happy if he could just have autonomy and do what he wanted. And although it broke his father's heart, the prodigal son left his father's house. And the way that he did it is that he asked, Father, give me my share of inheritance now. You know, like when you die, you were going to give me some stuff. Well, could you just give it to me now, like in a lump sum? That'd be great, right? Essentially what he's doing here is severing his family ties. He, he's, we call it disowning. He is disowning his family. The reason this was so hurtful is because he's disowning his family. He's saying in a sense, you are dead to me, so give me my inheritance. And the son, he got the autonomy that he asked for, that he wanted. And he went out and he did all those things that he thought would make him happy. He partied like crazy all day, every day, until finally, as tends to happen, he ran out of money, and suddenly he finds himself all alone, and he has nothing. 
And after a while more, he hits even lower, right? Rock bottom. Can't get any lower than this. He finds himself eating pig slop. I lived in Hungary. It's an agrarian economy and there's tons of pigs everywhere. And let me tell you, there's not a whole lot grosser than thinking about eating pig slop. Um, and he, this, he begins to think to himself, what am I doing here in the gutter when the servants in my father's house live better than I do? He said, I'd rather be a servant in my father's house than be here in a gutter eating pig slop. So he pulls himself together, he gathers his confidence, and, and he determines that he's going to suck up his pride and go to his father's house and ask if his father would take him back. But you know the story. When his dad saw him coming, walking down the road to the house, not only did he welcome him back, but he ran to him. Something which would be completely undignified in that culture. But he didn't care. That dad didn't care because he loved his, so, his son so much. He was so happy to see him that he couldn't restrain the emotion that he felt. And he just ran to see him and embraced him. And the son asked, Dad, oh, would you let me come into your home? I'll be a servant. I don't ask for anything. God, I, Dad, I just want to be a servant. Just treat me like you treat your other servants. Because, you know, you treat them pretty good. And the dad said, Son, of course I will take you back into my home, but I'm not taking you back as a servant. I'm taking you back as a son. I hope you see the gospel in that. That's an amazing picture of the gospel. All of us, like the prodigal son, we have told God, I don't need you. All I want is autonomy from you. You're holding me back from what would make me happy. I want to live my life and do what I want on my terms. But when we get that autonomy that we think is going to make us so happy, when we get out there and do those things which we think will make us happy and fulfilled, what we find ourselves after a while is that we are unhappy and unfulfilled. We're empty and alone. And so we return to the Lord and we say, Lord, if you'll have me back, I will serve you. I'll give you my life. I'll serve you. I don't ask for a lot. I just, I will serve you. But instead of taking us back as servants, God welcomes us as his children. And I tell you what, if you treat your slaves well, you probably treat your children the best. And he puts the signet ring on us. He bestows us with the status of son and daughter, fully loved, fully accepted, fully restored. Declared righteous in Christ, justified, welcomed in that's the point of the gospel it sets us free completely but in our freedom because of the love of the father we return to our heavenly father offering ourselves to him but what happens is that he says no I don't want you to be my servant I want you to be my son let me tell you one more story about a, a slave who got his freedom I see a lot of you you know, being very uh, festive today, wearing your green. Let me tell you about a, a story about a slave who got his freedom, but yet was so profoundly impacted by the love of God that he chose to return to those who held him captive, who kidnapped him, who mistreated him, and share the Lord with them, share the love of God with them. His name was Patrick. He was born around the year 400 in Roman Britain. Um, his parents were Christians. His father was actually a deacon in the church where they attended, and Patrick was raised to be a Christian. When Patrick was 16 years old, his village was attacked by a, a band of Irish raiders who were coming and, you know, plundering, and they carried him off as a young man to Ireland as a slave. 
He was cut off from his family, from his home, from everything he knew. Um, Patrick was mistreated. He was forced to work as a slave by these people who kidnapped him. And he worked for them as a slave for six years. And after six years in captivity, working as a slave, Patrick escaped. He, he made a break for it one day. He made his way down to the coast and he was able to work his way back to Britain, get on a boat and work his way back home. But not long after returning to Britain, Patrick had a dream, which he believed was from the Lord. He believed it was God speaking to him. In this dream, there was a man telling him that he needed to return to Ireland as a missionary to tell the Irish people about Jesus, to preach the gospel and plant churches. So after he had this dream, Patrick began his religious training. He entered a monastery to do theology studies. And after he entered the monastery, then he, he went into a missionary training program. They actually had those back in the day. All in all, Patrick spent 15 years in training because he believed God had spoken to him that he needed to return to Ireland and preach the gospel. So he applied to be sent by the church as a missionary to Ireland. And guess what? His request was denied. There were two people who applied. They chose the other guy. So he said, uh, well, you know, that's got to be completely devastating, right? This guy just spent 15 years of his life. He believes that God has spoken to him, that he has to go to Ireland and preach the gospel. Why would God speak to him and then not let him be chosen to go? But shortly thereafter, word came that for some reason, some unforeseen circumstance, the other man was unable to go, and now they were sending Patrick. So Patrick returned to Ireland, and he preached Jesus. He preached the gospel in ways that people could understand in their culture. He spoke their culture. He, he spoke their language. He knew their culture. He famously used the clover, you know, so abundant in Ireland. He used the clover as an illustration of the doctrine of God, as one God in three persons, a, a trinity. He used the symbols which were familiar to the Irish culture, the fire and the sun, and he used them as tools to preach the gospel to them. And after 15 years in Ireland, much of the country had been evangelized. In fact, so much of Ireland was evangelized that they began moving over to the other Celtic region, which was Scotland, and they began doing the same thing there, planting churches, preaching the gospel. Not only were churches established, but the amazing thing was that Patrick, as a missionary himself, had this burning missionary zeal. He instilled in the Christians, which these were, you know, he led to the Lord, these new Christians, he instilled in them the central importance of mission and evangelism. And the result was that in the generations after Patrick was gone, the Celtic church that he established was a missionary sending church. They had been started by a missionary, but they became a missionary sending church. And ironically, they began sending missionaries from Ireland and Scotland to Britain to evangelize those people. The same place where the missionaries had originally come from. So as everyone is drinking green beer today, I hope that you will remember the real St. Patrick because it's an amazing story and it's a true story. St. Patrick, you know who he was? He was a man who was so transformed by the gospel that he returned as a missionary to the people who had kidnapped him and mistreated him and he preached the gospel to them. He planted churches and he raised up a missionary movement. How cool is that? That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of grace. You realize that? 
It's the power of grace. It assures you that in Christ you are fully loved and fully accepted. And that sets you free. And if you really get it, it compels you. It moves you. It takes hold of your heart to the point where as a free man, you would choose of your own volition to give yourself fully over to him who gave himself fully over for you. But as you give yourself to him to be his servant, know this, that he welcomes you in and says, I don't want you to be my slave. I want you to be my son. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. And Lord, my prayer today is that the transforming power of the gospel would be present and active in every single life that's represented here today. Lord, I pray if there's anybody who does not yet know your love, that does not yet know your grace, who has not yet repented of their sins and put their faith fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that they would make that decision today. That as we sing these next songs, Lord, that that you would do work within them. You bring them to the place of coming to you and saying, Lord, here I am. Thank you that in Christ I can be forgiven and justified. Lord, thank you also, all of us, that you have let us go. You have set us free. But Lord, now of our own volition, as free men and women, we come to you and say, Lord, if you will have us, Lord, let us be welcomed in. And we want to give you everything. Thank you, Lord, for all that you, you have done for us. Thank you for your grace that we experience every day. We praise your name in Jesus' name, amen. Over these next few songs, we're gonna be taking communion. We're gonna be remembering the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us for our redemption. I encourage you that when you're ready, please take the elements of communion there over there.